Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. On June 16, 1988, Sally Weiner received a call from a congressman's office. The man on the other end of the phone told Sally that her husband had been selected for an award for his civic duty. Her husband, Harry, was very involved in the community, and an award for civic duty wasn't something that was outside the realm of possibility. An excited Sally agreed to meet this man to discuss the ceremony the following day at 1 o'clock. At 4 o'clock, Harry received a phone call from Sally saying that she had been kidnapped and that Harry needed to comply with the kidnapper's instructions if she was to be released unharmed. Sally Weiner was born Sally Elaine Stroh on May 4, 1951, in Erie, Pennsylvania. Around 1975, Sally married Harry Weiner, and they had two children together, a son, followed a few years later by a daughter. Sally and Harry reportedly had a good marriage, and the Weiners were a typical all-American family. Harry worked for Penn Bank, and in 1987, his work moved the family from Erie to Cory, about a 30-minute drive away so Harry could manage the branch located in the Quarry Plaza. The family had been active members of their church in Erie, so one of the first things they did in Quarry was join a congregation. They joined the local First Presbyterian Church. However, this didn't end up being a good fit for them, and they later moved to the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church. In addition to taking part in church activities, Sally was on the Parent-Teacher Council, and Harry was in charge of a United Way campaign. However, it's not clear if the United Way campaign was something that was done through the church or that they did on their own. While they attended First Presbyterian, the Winers became social acquaintances of the Copenheffer family. David Copenheffer was born July 24, 1947, in Ohio. David had an upper-middle-class upbringing in Troy, which is a rural town in Miami County, Ohio. His family opened the Copenheffer Meatpacking Company in 1963, and the business was run by David's father. In 1975, after his father passed away, the business was sold. David's mother, Doris, worked as a publicist for a milk marketing group, and she served as the Republican County Chairwoman for years. She even ran for the Ohio House of Representatives in 1975, 
but her run was unsuccessful. As a teenager, David started collecting guns, a hobby that he maintained into adulthood. He even spent two years gunsmithing in Golden, Colorado, and this is where he likely honed the skills needed for him to reload his own ammunition. After these two years spent gunsmithing, David began to bounce around between jobs. Although David was intelligent, he seemed to be an underachiever, and he struggled to hold down a job for any length of time. David married his wife Patricia in late 1969 or in early 1970. The dates are unclear. Shortly after marrying Patricia, David managed a gubernatorial campaign in Montgomery County for Roger Cloud. By this time, David was interested in computers, and he was hoping that, if Cloud won the election, David would get state computer repair contracts. Unfortunately for both David and Roger, Cloud's bid for the governor's seat was unsuccessful. Now, as a youth, David had a few run-ins with the law, but he appeared to start making better choices as he grew up. But in 1971, David was both accused of and charged with murder. You see, David was planning on starting a computer firm with two other men, John Culkins and another unnamed man. David and John had met through the ITT Technical Institute in Dayton, Ohio, when David set up interviews to hire a partner for his computer firm. John was an engaged Air Force veteran and a devout Catholic. In fact, he had attended seminary school for a time, his mother taught at a Catholic school, and John's sister was a nun. In early January 1971, John was murdered. He was found in a field on rural Mud Run Road in Bath Township, Ohio. His body was riddled with bullets, and an autopsy showed he'd been shot nine times with a 38 caliber weapon. The shots were concentrated on his head, neck, and back. He had been shot in such a close area that his neck had nearly been severed by bullets. The autopsy also showed that David had fought back against his killer in a bid to survive. After he was dead, his face had been run over by a car. Ugh. During the investigation, police discovered that David had taken out seven accidental death policies on John that totaled $550,000. While John's father was the beneficiary of one policy, David was named as beneficiary in the other six. Records showed that David paid for all of the policies, and it would later come out that John knew David was taking out two policies, but had no knowledge of the other five. Thinking that the life insurance payout was the motive, police arrested David and charged him in John's murder. They theorized there was no computer firm. David dreamed the whole thing up as a way of finding someone to take out a life insurance policy on. It would have been easy for David to convince John that, as a partner, he needed financial protection in the event of John's death, therefore getting his consent for policies to be taken out. However, at trial, the prosecution didn't have any other evidence implicating David, and he was acquitted. Five of the seven policies weren't in effect when John died, so David ended up with $50,000 from the one that paid out. The other payout was on the policy that had John's father as the beneficiary, 
and that was worth $100,000. In 1979, with the murder accusations behind them, David and Patricia had a son. This would be their only child. And despite David's rather unstable employment history, he managed to spend five years as a materials manager at Hoover Universal, an auto industry supplier, before he was fired for making a very expensive mistake. After being let go from Hoover Universal, he went to manage a grocery store. From 1982 until 1987, the Copenhaver family lived in Greenfield, Ohio. David was active in the Greenfield Republican Club, while Patricia was active with the Greenfield Area Christian Center, which was a food and clothing bank. The whole family attended the First Presbyterian Church of Greenfield. Unfortunately, by 1987, David was out of work again. Around August of that year, the Copenheffer's Greenfield home was severely damaged by a fire. The fire chief said that, while the family was on vacation, a fluorescent light fixture had been left on in David's reloading room in the basement. For reasons unknown, the fixture fell and ignited the gunpowder, starting a fire that caused $71,000 in damages. After the fire, the family decided to move to Cory, Pennsylvania, and this, dear listeners, is where Harry and Sally met David and Patricia. Now, the Copenheffers chose Corey because their favorite pastor from their church in Greenfield had moved to the First Presbyterian Church of Corey, the same church that the Winers attended when they first moved to Corey. After visiting the pastor and the church a few times, they decided the area suited them and they would be happy living there. Patricia later told the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette that they were impressed with Corey during their visits. She said, We liked the town. We liked the school system. We weren't happy where we were living. When David was unemployed, we moved. We weren't going to stay there. It wasn't the town we were going to raise our son in. This was more like Troy, where David grew up. Patricia told another churchgoer that they were also impressed with Corey's low crime rate. The Copenheffers took over Corey cards and books located in Corey Plaza, which was located in the same group of stores as Harry Weiner's bank. While the Winers were still at First Presbyterian Church, they were involved with a program called Marriage Encounter, which was devoted to making a good marriage better, and the Copenheffers attended the same program. We'll be right back after a word from this week's sponsor. Hey friends, I need to tell you about a new unsolved true crime podcast called Key to the Case. Each week, Host Sam takes listeners and her co-host, Sean, deep into an unsolved mystery, such as the disappearance of Barbara Bolek, an experienced hiker who disappeared from the Montana mountains while her hiking partner was just feet away, or the disappearance of Amber Ayaz and Melissa Fu, a mother and daughter who were abducted from their home, never to be seen again. Sam and Sean focus on cases that have previously remained out of the spotlight in a thorough and thoughtful way. I enjoyed Key to the Case, and I know you will too. You can find Key to the Case wherever you find your podcasts. Now we're back at June 16, 1988, when Sally received a phone call from the office of the congressman about Harry receiving a civic award. 
But it turned out the call didn't come from the office of U.S. Representative Thomas Ridge, and there was no award. The call was made by David Copenhaver, posing as an aide. During the call, David asked Sally to meet him the next day to make arrangements. He also said that the award was a surprise, so she was not to tell her husband anything about it. Sally agreed to meet David, although she didn't know it was David, the following day about one o'clock in the parking lot of the Christian Missionary and Alliance Church, which was located next to the plaza where the bank and the bookstore were. Sally was unable or unwilling to keep the award a secret, and she told Harry about the call and the upcoming meeting. On June 17th, Sally arrived for the meeting as planned. She was seen arriving in the parking lot in her two-tone Ford Escort. This was the last time she was seen alive. Three hours later, while he was working at the bank, Harry received a phone call from a man who identified himself as Bill Johnson. During this phone call, Harry heard Sally saying she had been kidnapped and she was being held at gunpoint. What Harry didn't know was that he wasn't hearing Sally speaking in real time. Her voice had been recorded and he was listening to the playback. Sally said he needed to follow all of the kidnapper's directions to spare her life. Sally relayed the message that the kidnapper wanted money, a ransom, and she instructed him to go to the parking lot outside the bank and find a blue bag that would contain the next instructions. At no point did Sally identify her kidnapper. She likely didn't have a chance because she was being held at gunpoint. Harry did what Sally said in the phone call. He found the bag. Inside was a typed ransom note. In 1988, computers were not common, and the note being typed was unusual. The note began, Follow our instructions exactly, or your family will die. In the note, the word exactly was spelled with an E between the L and the Y, so it was E-X-A-C-T-L-E-Y instead of L-Y. The note went on to say, if you do not follow our orders, we will kill her, and we will not be quick to kill her. She will die a slow, painful, and horrible death. We will take days to torture her, and we will finish by cutting her into many pieces, and you will never find enough to bury. So if you want your wife to live, do exactly as we say. And the second exactly was misspelled the same way the first exactly was. The ransom note continued, instructing Harry to go to a nearby radio shack to collect walkie-talkies that had been put under his name, and then to set the walkie-talkies to a specific frequency. He needed to tape the send button of one of the radios down so the kidnapper could hear what Harry was doing at all times. The other would be used for the kidnapper. Harry didn't know it was David at this point that was sharing further information and instructions. In the next step, Harry was to go to his bank and fill the blue bag with money. The note did not give a specific amount. Instead, the note asked for 90% of the cash stored at the bank. Once the money was in the bag, the note told Harry to drive 10 miles away from town on Route 89 to a railroad underpass. Once at the underpass, Harry would receive additional instructions. The note ended with a warning that Harry was being watched and he was not to contact the authorities. 
It said, remember, if you are followed or you don't follow our instructions, your wife will start suffering and dying. Call the cops or screw with us and all will die. And of course, dying was misspelled D-I-E-I-N-G. Harry decided to ignore the final instruction. He contacted a vice president of the bank, as well as the bank's security office, local police, state police, and the FBI, to report Sally's kidnapping. The authorities conferred and decided that Harry was to follow the instructions and try to get Sally back. The cash ransom would come from the bank. Penn Bank actually had a policy in place for ransom demands made against staff or their family members. The bank president, Thomas Doolin, told the media that the banks in Erie have a long-standing belief that the banks should come together to meet a demand if it is made. Harry collected the walkie-talkies, bagged the cash, and went to the arranged point by 9 p.m., but he never heard from the kidnapper. Harry waited for two hours, but no communication came, via the walkie-talkie or otherwise. Investigators waited until the following afternoon before going public with information about Sally's kidnapping. They told the media almost everything they knew in the hopes that someone might have information that would help find Sally. They needed to know if anyone saw anything suspicious or had anyone seen Sally, or if they knew anything that could help the investigation. The bank president spoke to the media saying that the bank will cooperate fully with the kidnappers' demands whether that means with money or with something else. He said, Money you can replace, human life you cannot. Our number one priority is to gain her release and get her back safely. He went on to say, In one way this thing looks to be well organized, and in another way it looks amateurish. This is a tiny little branch office and a tiny little community, so it's hard to figure out why this has all taken place. On June 19th, early in the morning, the police got a call from a local farmer. He had found the body of a woman in a clearing near a gas well on his property and thought he had found Sally. Police made the drive to the farm in Wayne Township, which was about five miles northwest of Corey. The body was that of Sally Weiner, wearing the clothes she was last seen in, but her purse was missing. An autopsy revealed that Sally had been shot in the back of the head at very close range with a 357 Magnum or a 38 caliber pistol. There were no other wounds, bruises, or marks on her body. The pathologist determined that Sally had been killed between midnight on the 17th and 2 p.m. on the 18th, a large window of time. A forensic entomologist was able to narrow the time frame down based on insect activity on the body. The entomologist said that Sally died between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. on June 17th. That put the time of her death before the deadline Harry was given to pay the ransom. David never intended to let Sally live. The pathologist said it was possible that the gunshot didn't kill Sally right away. She may have been alive but in a coma for some time before succumbing to the injury. If this was the case, she would have been unconscious and not in any pain. Thank goodness for small mercies. Ballistics testing showed that the bullet used in the execution-style killing was a glazer. According to Shooting Illustrated, the bullet was 
the standard FBI-approved defensive handgun bullet. It was a jacketed hollow point that expanded to about one and a half times its original diameter and penetrated to at least 12 inches in 10% ordnance gelatin. The article went on to say that that is still the projectile most trusted by law enforcement and those carrying handguns for self-defense. This type of ammunition essentially balances expansion and penetration in an effort to provide a hypothetical optimum degree of stopping power, whatever that is, against bad guys. Police looked into Harry's work as a possible connection to the kidnapping. They requested a list of people who had been denied loans at the bank and started working through the names. Patricia and David Copenheffer were on the list as they had applied for and been denied $25,000 in business loans the previous December. Remember, this is $25,000 in the 80s. It was a lot of money. The $25,000 was across two loans, one to expand the bookstore and the other to open a Rack's fast food franchise. In addition, David had tried to cash a check in the amount of $60,000 at Penn Bank. This check was the insurance payout from the house fire, but the check was from out of state and the bank had a policy about cashing out-of-state checks. As the bank manager, Harry was the one who made the final call and enforced the bank's policy. Investigators went to speak with the Copenheffers, a routine interview at their store. While they were there, they noticed a sign in the window that was printed. It had the same symbols used in the ransom note. This connection put the Copenheffers at the top of the suspect list. A state trooper, Charles, who was a friend of the Copenheffers, came forward, and he reported a strange conversation he had had with David. Patricia later admitted that the conversation may have appeared strange and may have brought suspicion onto her and David. According to Charles, David went to his house and offered to help investigate Sally's disappearance. David said he wanted to share information, but he was hesitant to go to the police station because of all the officers and federal agents that would be there. David reported he had heard all kinds of rumors about people being in the bank with machine guns and that a note was found. As soon as David left, Charles called in to report this visit. Charles was informed that David was already a suspect, and Charles was asked to arrange another meeting with David, which he did for that evening. When David, Patricia, and their son arrived to the meeting as agreed, there was an FBI agent and a state police officer waiting to speak with them. After questioning David, he was released. But investigators quickly found enough evidence to arrest David for Sally's kidnapping. They didn't have enough to make murder charges stick, at least not yet. During a search at the bookstore and of his home, investigators found drafts of the ransom note and a hand-drawn map torn up in the trash. Other notes and directions, this time handwritten, were also found, as well as a list of things he would need for the kidnapping, like radios and a to-do list to ensure he didn't forget anything. David's wallet contained a list of items used in the kidnapping. Reporting on the case says that investigators could only make out some of the words, but it's not clear if that's because the list was damaged or because his handwriting was hard to read. They did manage to make out the words meet and tape, which they believed was in reference to meeting Sally in the parking lot 
and then recording her voice to be played in the phone call to Harry. The word cuff, probably short for handcuff, was visible. And Nova, which could have been in reference to Novatech Incorporated, an electric stun gun manufacturer. Investigators believed that a stun gun was used to subdue Sally and scare her into making the voice recording. Lastly, there were the words, make call, reminding David to call Harry and play the recording. Parts of one draft note was identical to the note Harry found in the blue bag. The hand-drawn map they found indicated where additional ransom notes had been left around Corey in a kind of scavenger hunt, with additional details on how Harry could save Sally. Because there was no further contact after the initial note, Harry never knew about these other notes, but the notes were found by investigators and they found them in both Erie and Crawford counties. Many of these notes threatened violence against Sally if there was any police involvement. One note said, We are heavily armed with submachine guns, automatic pistols, grenades, and an M16. We will kill everyone if you screw up. Any cops, and she dies. Any bugging devices, she dies. Don't drive over 30 miles an hour. Another note insinuated that the kidnapper had killed before. At 2.30 a.m. on June 20th, David was arrested at his home and charged with kidnapping, attempted robbery, and attempted extortion. David was read his Miranda rights, which he waived, choosing to speak openly with the detectives who were interviewing him. He told detectives that, on the evening of June 17th, he was at the bookstore from 5.20 p.m. onwards. When police asked where he was that afternoon, at the time Sally was kidnapped, he clammed up and said he needed to speak with a lawyer before he responded. Going back to when investigators found the notes, these notes were secured in different ways, and two of these ways linked back to David. One was secured with a steel rod, and a pile of steel rods were found at David's house under some brush. Another note was secured using a piece of crepe paper. The rest of the crepe paper was found at the bookstore. The tear pattern matched the piece of paper found with the note. The notes, including the one in the blue bag, had David's fingerprints on them. David was asked to provide a writing sample to match the handwritten notes and directions, and he was asked to write the word exactly. And he misspelled it exactly the same way it was misspelled in the typed ransom note. During the search of the Copenhagen home, police found David's gun collection, including high-powered automatic weapons. Multiple guns were loaded and cocked, and four contained Glazer ammunition, which is the same type used to shoot Sally. Ballistics testing showed there were two 357 Magnum pistols in the house, which were possibly the murder weapon. In addition to the notes and weapons tying David to the crime, Tire prints at a note-hiding place and also near Sally's body matched David's vehicle. A small piece of female flesh mixed with the pieces of glazer ammunition was found on David's pant leg. Ugh. Green duct tape found at the scene matched a roll found at David's house. Investigators looked for Sally's fingerprints in David's van, however, they didn't find any. The van was very clean and appeared to be recently washed. They found even more evidence when David's computer was searched. This was one of the first cases where a computer was forensically examined. 
and investigators found three drafts of the script of the phone call David made to Sally on June 16th, where he posed as a congressman's aide and set up the meeting. A draft of the recording of Sally, six drafts of the original ransom note and the notes David had hidden, and a 22-point plan for the entire kidnapping. The 22-point plan revealed that he intended to meet Harry at the final location and kill him and Sally before crushing up the murder weapon and disposing of the clothes he was wearing. Although he had tried to delete the evidence, it was able to be recovered from the hard drive. Even with this big pile of evidence, police continued to conduct interviews to gather more. The pastor that was the reason for the Copenhagen family moving to Cory was interviewed, and his house was searched. His computer and paper were tested and compared to the ransom notes, but it was not a match, and he was cleared. Now, they interviewed Patricia four times. David and Patricia's son was also interviewed, and although his name can be found online, he was a minor and an innocent party, so we are not using his name in this episode. Patricia told the Dayton Daily News that she was a suspect. She said authorities were looking for an accomplice or something. She said that the police had taken hair and blood samples, along with fingerprints and writing samples from both her and her son. Patricia was very vocal in the media. She maintained that her husband had been set up and there was not sufficient evidence to implicate David. She said to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, This is just an unbelievable farce. Once they have a likely scapegoat, they forget all other leads. It appears to be similar to 1971. She is, of course, referring to the 1971 murder that David was acquitted of. Patricia continued, saying, David is not the kind of man to do anything like this. He's kind and generous. He would do anything for anybody. He has done a lot of things anonymously to help other people. This is 180 degrees off the mark. Patricia also said that David had an alibi for the time of the kidnapping and murder. According to Patricia, David was in Erie meeting with real estate agents until 6 o'clock. Unfortunately, she didn't know the names of the agents. She then said that David was at the bookstore until 9 p.m., and she was his alibi for this three-hour window. She was also his alibi for the next two days, although I'm not sure why he would need an alibi for that time unless investigators thought he went back to the scene of the murder. Police managed to find another witness who placed David at the bookstore around the time that Patricia said he was there. David Zimmer was a bank employee who said that when he first heard that Sally had been kidnapped, he left the bank's eerie branch where he was that day and headed back to Corey. He said that when he arrived in Corey about 6.30 or 7, he saw David in the bookstore. During one of the interviews with the Gazette, Patricia was asked if the family was having money troubles. She replied that, while money was tight, that was expected in their first year of business, and they were not in a dire financial situation by any means. She did say they would be having financial problems when this is all over with, likely due to the legal bills and the dip in income from having to have the store closed. She was asked about the business loans that were denied by Harry's bank and said that they just never heard back, so they applied with another bank where they were approved. By June 23rd, Patricia stopped cooperating with authorities. Her lawyer had advised her not to speak with them any further. She still spoke to the media and updated them on David, 
saying that she had visited him and he was bewildered and confused. Also confused were members of the community and the church who saw David as a family man, the kind of guy who would be late on a Saturday morning because he was busy watching cartoons with his son. People who knew him described him as kind and generous, with a glass-half-full outlook on life. They couldn't believe he could be suspected of such a crime. David's family, however, were less shocked. According to the Dayton Daily News, to some relatives, David is the ultimate family embarrassment, a bad memory they want to forget. Following the murder acquittal in 1971, his family disowned him, with one relative saying, He just didn't fit in the family. I don't think anybody wanted to keep in contact. So David was arrested on kidnapping charges fairly quickly, but it was nearly a month before he was charged with murder. Prosecutors wanted to ensure that all their ducks were in a row and get all the evidence tested, and with David in prison on the kidnapping charge, there was no hurry for them to bring other charges. Along with the murder, David was charged with terroristic threats and unlawful restraint. If found guilty, he faced the death penalty. During a preliminary hearing, David's lawyer argued there was no evidence that the person who kidnapped Sally and the person who murdered her were one and the same. The lawyer said that David should only be charged with kidnapping. The prosecution argued back, stating that it was highly unlikely that Sally would have escaped a kidnapper just to run into someone unrelated that killed her. The judge agreed with the state and the murder charges remained. While the case worked its way through the legal system, David was behind bars, and while he was in jail, he managed to add two charges to his ever-growing list. On September 22nd, David was charged with two counts each of criminal solicitation to commit murder and criminal conspiracy to commit murder. You see, he'd asked two inmates to have Harry and one of the chief investigators on Sally's case killed. The inmates reported his request to authorities who added the charges. Not to be outdone by her husband, Patricia was arrested and charged on October 17th for trying to intimidate a witness, one of the inmates who went to the authorities. Patricia had placed ads in eerie newspapers that were actually coded messages for the inmate and prosecution witness, Daniel Verasco. On October 5th, an ad was run to Cecil. Verasco's nickname, from Aunt Pat, which is how Verasco knew Patricia. The full ad said, Cecil, we know you are between a rock and a hard place. They forced you to go along and tempted you with a great prize. Now, if you turn on sunshine and tell the truth, you're afraid they will back out and hurt you. But do not fear, the man in charge will not let them. Let's stick together and we all will win. Your aunt. The second ad, run on October 12th, was addressed to Grasshopper, another nickname that Verasco is known by. The message said, Grasshopper, did you a favor with the kids? Agree to meet with a representative. We're counting on you. Verasco reported that he received two greeting cards with similar messages. Although Patricia used a fake name, address, and phone number, Verasco knew the messages were from her. Patricia did not go to court for these charges until a year later, where she was found guilty of a misdemeanor. She did admit at her trial to placing the ads, but said she didn't mean for them to be intimidating. 
Patricia was sentenced to one to two years in prison and a $500 fine, the maximum sentence allowed for the charge. With both of his parents in prison, David and Patricia's son went to live with relatives in Ohio. Perhaps inspired by the inmates who told on him, David requested a meeting with the district attorney where he asked to speak privately regarding fellow inmates' discussions of criminal activity and demonstrations of criminal techniques. In short, David wanted to tell on his fellow inmates, perhaps in the hopes of becoming a prosecution witness and making a deal. On December 16th, David met with the assistant district attorney and the Erie County detective. His lawyer was not present for the meeting. After David told the assistant district attorney and the detective what he knew, mainly about inmates talking about how to commit crimes in jail and hotwire cars, they asked him if he had ever discussed criminal activity in jail. David said yes, yes he had. And he told the men about how he was speaking with some other inmates about the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. The inmates were talking about how Bobby lived so long after being shot in the head. And David replied that the way to do it is to make sure when you make the shot that the medulla is not severed. That would cause the person to linger on. Then he placed his hand on the back of the detective's head and demonstrated where he meant. The detective found this interesting, as Sally was possibly shot in a way that prolonged the dying process. Jury selection began on February 27, 1989, in Pittsburgh. Due to the pretrial publicity of the case, the trial had to be moved out of the area. The jury was sequestered for the duration of the trial. Opening statements occurred on March 3rd, with the prosecution going over their theory of the case and what David did to Sally. The prosecution said that on June 17th, around 1 p.m., David kidnapped Sally from the meeting place he had arranged. He then recorded her talking so he could play it over the phone to Harry and Harry would think he was listening to his wife speak in real time. David then shot Sally sometime that afternoon, but due to the location of the gunshot wound, she lingered and died sometime between 5 and 8 p.m. After shooting Sally and leaving her for dead, David dropped the blue bag at the bank and called Harry, playing the recording. The prosecution said that the latest David could have shot Sally was 5 o'clock which would still give him time to get to the bookstore where he was seen by a witness around 5.20. The defense offered a double-pronged approach. First, they said that David had an alibi for the time of the murder, and then they argued that there was not enough evidence linking David to the murder. The defense said that any evidence was a result of David's ignorance and some unfortunate circumstances. When faced with defending the evidence found on David's computer, his lawyer suggested that the evidence was planted there by someone using special equipment to telephone his computer. The crux of the defense was that David was somewhere else at the time of Sally's death. They said that if David was seen at the bookstore around 5.20, he could not have shot Sally at 5 and made it back to the bookstore in time, as well as saying that David was innocent they suggested someone else entirely was responsible, and they suggested that person was Harry. Harry had become engaged to another woman around Christmas of 1988, only six months after Sally's death. The defense said that was very fast, and that maybe Harry committed the crime and then framed David so he could move on. 
During the trial, David took the stand in his own defense, saying that he had nothing to do with Sally's kidnapping and murder. He claimed that the reason his fingerprints were on the blue bag and the ransom notes is because he actually found the bag earlier that day. He found it before Harry did. He said he followed the clues and read the notes as he went before drawing a rough map of where he'd been. And then he copied some of the instructions. He was just trying to be helpful. As for how all the evidence got on his computer and in his wallet, David didn't know. He just knew it wasn't his. The jury did not buy David's explanation, and on March 21st, after six hours of deliberation, they found David guilty on all charges. During the penalty phase, the jury needed to decide on David's sentence, life in prison or the death penalty. The prosecution told the jury about the aggravating circumstances, the kidnapping, Sally being held hostage, and Sally being murdered during a felony, all circumstances that bolstered the case for the death penalty. The defense presented the mitigating circumstances in an attempt to spare David's life. They brought up his standing in the church and community, how he has no criminal history or history of violence. Although the defense had David undergo a psychiatric evaluation which showed he had paranoia and antisocial personality disorder, they chose not to bring those diagnoses up, which was a strategic decision. It took the jury four and a half hours to decide that David Copenhaver should be sentenced to death due to the aggravating circumstances. They didn't find that any of the mitigating circumstances impacted the decision. On May 3rd, David was sentenced to death by electric chair for the murder of Sally Weiner, and he received 20 to 40 years behind bars for the other charges. Due to the death sentence, the case against David for soliciting the two inmates to kill Harry and the FBI agent were dropped. A death sentence comes with appeals, as it should, and David appealed his sentence on the grounds that the detectives illegally intruded on his right to privacy when they searched his computer and found documents he thought he deleted. He did not, however, appeal on the grounds that there was insufficient evidence to sustain a guilty verdict, which is something that is claimed by those who think he was wrongfully convicted. On March 18, 1991, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania affirmed David's death sentence. When his appeal was denied, David filed for post-conviction relief he made some pretty outlandish claims. At one point, he said his defense was ineffective for not filing a motion to exclude evidence found at his home and store, stating that virtually all of the evidence taken from his house and store bore no reasonable relevance to the case. He also said when he met with the DA in December of 88, he met under the condition that he wasn't asked any questions about the murder and kidnapping charges. He said that, during that conversation, he was bamboozled into making a statement relevant to the murder charges, and the statement he made should not have been allowed in at trial. David's petition for relief was denied on June 30, 1997. He then filed another petition, stating that his conviction and sentence should be thrown out due to a technicality. While the district court upheld his sentence, they did vacate the death sentence due to that technicality, which is complicated and more than my writer wants to get into 6,000 words into a 5,000-word script. However, David was unhappy that the conviction was not overturned, 
and he appealed the entire decision while the state appealed the decision to vacate the sentence. The case went to the Court of Appeals, which ended up siding with the state, and they reinstated the death sentence. While David was eligible to file additional petitions, he never got the chance. He died in prison of natural causes on January 20, 2013, at the age of 65. David maintained his innocence until the day he died. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.